Good morning. Welcome again. We're glad you're here. We're glad you had vacations. We've seen a bunch of you go. We know you're more tanned than when we saw you before, so I hope you enjoyed it. We want to continue putting truth into your mind to help you restore your mind, to renew it by the power of God, by the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. So to do that, we put truth in. So I want you to, again, tell yourself the truth, because it's one thing for me to simply say things to you, but for you to take them and make them your own, so important. And so, again, I want to welcome you into tell yourself the truth. So today, say it loud, say it proud. I am a joint heir with Christ, sharing his inheritance with him. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we share, if we are to share in his glory, we must also share his sufferings. Not happy truth. Reality truth. These are things you need to know. Lord Jesus, thank you for being with us this morning. Speak to us in a way that we would be able to hear from you well. We're not just here to see each other, although that is a great gift. We are here to hear from you. Please speak to your people today in Jesus' name. And to help keep you on that positive thinking path, a couple of my friends came by to sing for you again. When your bank account is close to red, you want to cry yourself to bed. It could be worse, you could be dead. Remember what I said, stay positive. Folks next door have a bigger home, a nice sports car and a garden gnome. Your minivan has zero chrome. You're blessed with what's your own. Stay positive. Well, here we are again. Can you believe it? We're in week six of an eight-part series called Base Camp. Eight weeks, so can you believe it's that far already? Next week is checkpoint, so we take a break from base camp. Then there's two weeks. Then it's Good Friday and Easter. Can you believe how the time has flown by? No, I can't. Yeah, it's going fast. Right after Easter, we're going to start something new. Oh, something new, you say. Well, what would that be? What would that be like? Well, let me just show you. And by me, I mean Phil. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to Twisted, the show where we reward the contestant who can best misuse scripture to mean whatever they want. (laughs) Let's meet our contestants. She's a no-nonsense mother of three who believes she knows everything about the Bible. Welcome, Helen! (laughs) Going up against her today is this confused man. Say hello to Doug! I'm not really sure why I'm here. Time for our first challenge. Take any verse out of context. Helen, 
John 14, 13, Jesus said, whatever you ask in his name, he will give to you. So if you don't get what you want, then that means that my faith is better than yours. Ah, John 14, 13, just got Helen 14.13 points. <laughs> that brings us to our first break. But there'll be more twisted. Same time, same channel. All right, so as we start, and we've been going through base camp, which the whole point is to try and get you the basics of Christianity, a step-by-step kind of growing um, look at what Christianity looks like. What better way to deal with one of the biggest problems that we have? As soon as we're done with that, it's how to take something and misuse it horribly. And the problem is, well, a lot of us, all of us, some of us have done that, and we do it multiple times, and we say, this is what God must do. And so we're going to look at twisted, how we have twisted some of those verses, some of those um, really famous verses, and how we've taken them out of context and misused them and put them on t-shirts and mugs and stuff like that, and not done what we were supposed to do with them. So that's what we're going to do, but that's after Easter. Okay, so when we started base camp way way back in January, um, the, the point was to help you if you have had a faith experience in, in the past and you didn't know what to do with it, to help you restart, to, uh, to, to go from the beginning and, and move your way along again. And, but we wouldn't do it the way that we might start by talking to kids. We're going to talk to adults. You're grown up. You know that things are there. And, and if, you, if you're working right now and you have um, kind of nothing in the way of faith, we're working to help you get to something in the way of faith. And then as we go along, we're going to do what we can together to fan that small flame into a steady blaze, okay? So that's what we're doing. Our mission and our goal that we have been about from the very beginning is to be on a road trip and earnest pursuit of Jesus. And part of what we do is to help you develop faith. We can't give you faith, but we can try and put you in an environment where faith possibilities exist. And so we talked about our five faith catalysts. And if you want to read about that, we've got it. Uh, there's a little card at the back somewhere. What we try to do is to give you opportunities for faith to arise, to grow, and that sort of stuff. And we do that together. So what we're doing in base camp is giving you a place where you can learn now, but you can come back to later when you get muddled again and you want to work the basics out again, or a place that you can share it with somebody else. So just go and check out. You can listen to the podcast. You don't even have to go there for pity's sake. You can just test it out in that direction, and we're going to help to try and develop faith. Grow it expand it, light it, however you want to describe that. That's what we're going to be trying to do. So we know that for some of us, we got, we got some sort of faith from mom and dad or Uncle Jim or, or somebody younger in your life when you, when you were way back then. And then you've experienced things and you've seen a gap between what you were told and what seems to be right in front of you. And you say, I don't, I don't, I don't know how to put these two things together. I don't know what to do with that. And some people, when, when their kids come up with tough questions, they, they just said, well, son, just, just believe. That's the thing you got to do. Just believe. And, and maybe, maybe when you're doing that, your wife kind of looked over at you and you'd shrug and you'd kind of mouth the words. Right? I have no idea. I have no idea. I don't know how to explain this sort of stuff. I don't really work on that. I just go. I'm in the process, right? So some of you have said, well, I don't believe. Uh, I, I don't believe this stuff fits with what's happening right in front of me And so that just messed up everything my parents told me. Everything that I grew up with, I don't know how to put the pieces together. Some of you walked away from faith, and you did it on purpose. 
Some of you walked away from faith, but you kind of did it accidentally. Uh, it just sort of happened. You know, you got busy. You, you were at school. Uh, you had to get a job. You needed time for friends. You needed time to be in relationships. And in that, there was no particular time or inclination to study or to do anything with theology. So you just kept moving on with your life, whatever, like the next class you have to take, the next job you need to be in, and you kept going, and you hope that everything faith-like will kind of just stick to you, and that as your expanding of the world grew, this would all just grow also. It would just come with you in that way with no extra effort. For some of you, honestly, this is the closest you've ever been to faith. You never had anything before, and right now you're in the best spot you've ever been. To each of us, there is a place for this to speak into our hearts, and so that's what we want to do. We all have those faith experiences back in our lives, um, and we, we've not really ever gone and worked out what it is to backfill. So if you started and you grew up in Sunday school and that's all you ever did, you, you've never figured out a plan or a way to, to backfill that, to kind of build that up again, and you have a childhood memory of that, but you never had an adult-level association with what this means going forward. We've just gone on with life. We didn't have time. We didn't consider those questions to be important enough, and so we just moved along. So that's what we're doing now. It's for people who have never heard, for people who've forgotten, from people who walked away, from people who knew, but they just never thought about it. For, for all of us, there's a chance to revive, to bring this back up, and so that's what we're trying to do. But what I've also said is, we're trying to build. So when we started in week one, we built on week one, and we called that week two. And then we built on week one and two, and we called that week three. And, and I really don't always just try to, to push people to the podcast, but I'm telling you for this series, if you've missed part of where we've been, you're missing the point because it is a growth. And if you're not sensing the growth in this journey, you need to go back and get some of those other pieces so that they fit together. Normally, we don't do it. It's kind of standalone, and we refer to each other, but this one really is building on ideas. So I would strongly recommend check it out, all right? So today, today we're going to talk about something that is uh, in common to all of us. We've all been here. We've all done this. Whether you go to church or don't go to church, whether you're Christian or not, whether you're, you're part of another religion or not, we've all done this. It's part of every religious system, and it's even part of systems that are not terribly religious, it's something um, that's right up at the top. No one recommends that you do this. This is just real life. This is what we actually do, not what you're supposed to do, right? So we all have come to this place. And what we do, we have a propensity to bargain with God, okay? We write deals with God all the time. We are prone to negotiate with him. So heads up, I'm telling you, in just a couple of moments, I'm going to ask you to be really, really honest. And we normally need a warning for that because we're, you know, sort of in group mode. And so we smile and say, fine, thank you, right? That's, we lie all the time is what I'm saying. Um, we don't do enough of this, but what I'm going to ask you to do is to confess. And that scares you, like close the doors because people are going to run out, uh, but prepare yourself to tell the truth and be honest. So just to help you get into this kind of mode, see if you can ever remember this happening. You said to uh, God, God, if you will, whatever, I promise that I'll always, you know, whatever, whatever it was that your thing. So imagine that you're coming home um, and it's past curfew again. 
right? God, I know you haven't heard from me in a while, but this is me, Bart. Uh, I don't know if you remember me, but if you could just have my parents be asleep when I get home, that'd be great. Don't worry, God, I'll go to church. I'll even wake up early to go to church. Or I'll work at camp. Sure, I can do that. I'll give you money. Just don't let my parents be awake. Anyone here ever done that? Last night, right? God, if you will, I promise that I'll never. And we go on and we have this. And it's a conversation that rarely is verbal, but it's always in the mind, right? It seems pretty familiar. This is a, it's, it's, it's so familiar that it's a joke. This is what happens. This is what people do. And this is the entry point for church for like half the people that ever go to church. It doesn't matter which one you choose. In every religion, we try to bargain with God. The, the, the funnier part is that you don't even have to believe in God to try to bargain with God. So even atheists do this sort of stuff. They try to be really proper in the way they do it so they don't Try really hard to not say God, but they say, you know, um, to who it may concern, um, if there's anybody out there, I've reached my end. I've, I've reached my limit. Show me a sign. And maybe it's a, a serious thing, and somebody's sick, and, and you go, and the doctor says, that's it. We, we have no more answers for you. It's just, it's just time. You're just going to have to wait to play this out. Or maybe it's a little bit uh, lighter kind of situation, a little sillier even, high school or university, and you're in the middle of exam time, right? And this is, God, if you just get me through this exam, I promise I'll, God, if you will, then I will. And we do that dance. It's a dance step that we have. God, if you will, then I will. And we, we, we think that this is a way that we'll get ahead in life. So here it comes, right? Now remember, you're in church. And if you're not in church and you're actually listening to this as the podcast, that's like carrying like a church umbrella over you, okay? So it's a holy place. Confession time. Truth time. If you have ever tried to, deal, to do a deal with God, please raise your hand. Anyone who's ever tried to make a deal with God, that's pretty good. Confession's good for the soul. Honesty's good to release that sort of thing. Do you know what else I know about you? Even though I haven't finished reading the last page of your private journal, um, I still know this. We don't keep our end of the bargain anyway. You negotiated and things went in your favor, and what did you say? Whew, was I ever lucky, right? That's what you tell your friends. When I got home, my parents were asleep. Oh, my boss was sick, so I got another day to work on it. The birth control came through. I guess it worked after all. <laughs> Nervous laughter, right? Whatever your deal with God was, because we've all had them, when it works out in our favor, we don't even follow through on what we've said. We're not better for the experience. And when we do that, there are two big assumptions that we make with God. The first assumption is this, that God knows you exist. You didn't notice that you were doing this, did you? you, you you've negotiated with God, and you have m way more faith than, the, than you thought that you did. Your faith is so strong that you believe, you think that God knows you exist. You think God knows your name. You think that God knows your circumstances. 
And you think God might actually care. Wow, look at you. Look at all that faith you didn't know you had. You think that the God of the universe, creator of it all, heard you mumbling away under your breath or just thinking in your head and that he might actually do something about it. You've got faith. Good for you. Assumption number two, you have something that God wants. And if you negotiate with somebody, there has to be a back and forth. So you kind of dig into your pocket and pull it out. Let me see. Let me see what I have here that you might want. Oh, God, I bet you'd like it if I gave you a little bit of obedience, right? How about that? Would you like some of that, God? Well, God, if you help me out here, I'll, I'll, I'll go to church. That's what I'll do. I'll even go to that one with the weird name that no one can figure out what it is. Why isn't it three in one? Why, what is that two for one church about? Why did they call it in zone? <laughs> Actual real life events, right? Oh, I know what you want, God. You want some money. That's all that you ever want, right? That's all you care about. You do for me, God, and I'll give you a little something, something. That's right, God. I got a bright, shiny new quarter with your name on it. Help me out here. And as you think about Christianity, here's the thing that differentiates Christianity from every other faith system that you may or may not be considering. Here's another thing that you're going to want to throw into your base camp. This one is another essential. And it's really good news. Honestly, it's quite refreshing and it's great to talk about. It also stands in stark contrast to what you've been told about God. It even stands in stark contrast to what you've heard about God for the most part, for most of us, even if you grew up going to church. Whether you grew up in a Protestant church, whether you grew up in a Catholic church, and here it is. God doesn't want something from you. God doesn't negotiate because he doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. And this is a really, really big difference. And the difference is so, so important that it has implications down on just about everything else that we think about God and religion and this whole system. And because of that, we need to adjust our thinking considerably. It's not that God doesn't like your stuff, all right? He's not all standoffish and say, not good enough for me. It's that you can't negotiate with God because you don't have anything he needs. You remember his job? Creator of the world, right? Creator of everything. What do you have that he can't get? But when you read the New Testament and you listen to the stories from these, these eyewitnesses, these friends of Jesus, people who are right around him all the time, the truth will become clear. The Christian faith is not about you getting something from God because he wants something from you. In the Christian faith, the word that encapsulates that, that, the whole big idea, the demarcation between Christianity and every other faith system, the summary word for all of that 
is grace. And chances are you've experienced grace somewhere in your life. One day, maybe you're at the, uh, the gas station and you ran out of money because, you know, gas is expensive, right? And so the, the, the cashier reaches across the counter and she goes into that little jar thing there and she pulls out a dollar or two and, and she hands them to you. You take them, then you hand them back to her. And um, you've experienced grace. Every, every once in a while, we get a pure moment of grace. I'm, I'm just going to do this for you. You didn't earn it. You, you didn't deserve it. But I'll do this for you because I want to do this for you. But that idea of grace that we see in a moment, a rare event, one that's so important that we have to Facebook it, we had to tweet about that, wouldn't believe what happened today, hashtag awesome, hashtag blessed, right? This is one of those moments that stands out for us as being different. This stuff that we see so rarely, it is the very center. It is the heart. It's the middle. It's the very essence of Christianity. It's the thing that drives everything about following Jesus and growing as a follower of Jesus. Grace. Unmerited favor. It's a beautiful definition because I can remember it. <laughs> it's short, right? Nice and simple. It's clear. It helps to have that in your mind. Unmerited. I did. You did. We did. Nothing to deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. It's unconditional. It's all about the person dispensing the grace and not about the person receiving the grace. Unmerited favor means that I'm getting something that costs me nothing. Any and all costs are the responsibility of the one who is dispensing the grace that I don't deserve, but in many, many cases, it's the grace that I need. When you, see, when, when you receive grace, the person who dispensed the grace is always the hero. They're the one who gets the credit for what happens. And this is the dynamic that you find, and it, it is central to Christianity. This dynamic sets it apart from um, how you have approached God in the past, even if you are a Christian. It's the thing that sets God apart from the gods of all the other pagan religions and basically any other faith system you can find. The word is grace, unmerited favor. I'm going to do this just because I want to. I'm not leveraging your character. I'm leveraging mine. This is what God is saying to us. I'm not digging down and looking for something within you that's good. I'm digging down and looking for good within me. Because of who I am, not because of you, because of who I am, I'm going to do something good for you. Grace is getting exactly what you don't deserve in a positive way. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace takes mercy and kicks it up a notch. It's better than even mercy. Now, we're going to get into something that's a little bit complicated, okay? So you're going to need to pay attention. We're going to look at a bit of scripture written by the uh, Apostle Paul. And in that, he describes for us the centrality of grace, the importance of grace in this Christian experience. It's another key, getting this idea, put it in your base camp. 
To get Christianity, you really need to get this. So we're going to have some notes on the screen for you. If, as you came in, hopefully you were given one of our uh, handouts. If you would like that, you can follow along in paper. If you like the online thing, use the free app called Uversion. Click on More, Events, into one, and you can follow along there. All the notes, all the announcements, all that kind of stuff is there, okay? We're going we're gonna to find this tucked away in an ancient document. It's short. It's called the letter, or sometimes in Christian circles we would say the epistle, um, to the church in the city of Ephesus. The short form, we would say, just Ephesians, right? Ephesians are people who live in a city called Ephesus. It's an ancient port city. People sometimes call these books, as in it's a New Testament book, but it's really a letter, and it's been collected with other letters and other ancient documents, and, and we sort of bind them together, and we put that into this thing we call the New Testament. It's written by the Apostle Paul, and at this time, he's in Rome, and he's in prison, and he's writing this letter probably about 65 AD, okay? So that's about 30 years after the events of Christ's life. That's important because what he is saying and what he is writing can be um, validated or invalidated by Plenty of eyewitnesses that are still walking about. Plenty of people who were there and were able to see this. So in Paul's writing, it's in a very um, open to criticism kind of um, atmosphere. And by criticism, I just mean someone who can respond accurately to what was actually there. Okay? So he writes this letter. And this is a little bit different because sometimes he writes specifically to people. He's writing this to um, the church in Ephesus, but he's not really writing it to them. He doesn't know them. He hasn't met them. And so um, the recipients of this letter, they don't know Paul personally. They might have heard of him. They know his reputation. And what he's doing here is just making general statements, not statements that are addressing a problem specifically like we see in other letters. But here he's just saying, here's some general information that would be good for me to teach you, to remind you of, and to encourage you or anyone else who reads this. Because ancient documents are hard to come by even when they were new when they weren't called ancient, they were just documents. So they would pass them around. The same thing would get passed around to other people. So when we start this, it might sound a little bit negative, um, but it's going somewhere great. So Ephesians 2, starting at verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And by dead, he meant separated from God. God is life, and if you are separated from God, you are separated from life. In terms of your relationship with God, you don't have one. The next few verses describe what we do and how we're far from God. And so he says we violate our own consciences and we don't even keep our own standards. And then a few verses later, he hits this transition point. And two words he uses in our normal English translation kind of get buried in the middle of the sentence. But in Greek, Greek is the language that this was written in um, originally. And remember... <laughs> contrary to popular belief, English didn't exist yet, okay? So if, if Jesus always spoke in English, right? That's the way people think of it. But Greek was the business language of the day. It was a lot like English is in many ways. If you wrote it in Greek, it was the language that the most people in the most places could read. So in the Greek language, there's not a way to highlight. They don't have italicized or bold or, or, or something like that to emphasize certain phrases or words. So when there's something important in Greek, their whole grammatical structure is different than ours. They would just take the important part and put it at the beginning of the sentence. 
You think of how crazy that would be for us if we were writing like that, but that's what they do. Here's the important part. I'll just put it at the beginning of the sentence. So grammatical structure, totally different. So there are many translations of the Bible in English, which is fantastic. In general, I preach from the NIV, the New International Version. I also really like the NLT, New Living Translation. But there is a version known as the NASB. Letters are fun, aren't they? Um, The New American Standard Bible. Each translation has a reason and a point that makes it different. The New American Standard Bible is one of the closest word-for-word translations. So when you go to read it in English, it's kind of wooden. It's awkward. It's uncomfortable to read. Um, But it's also a much more literal translation. So I'm telling you that because I'm going to start in NIV and I'm going to end in NIV, but I'm going to go NASB in the middle, all right? And we'll show you when those things happen, but because I want you to see the emphasis that the Apostle Paul made on this. So we get to that next part. So he says, you're dead in your transgressions and sins, you're far from God, and then he says, but God, all right? That's the way it starts in the NASB, but God, you've got a big, big problem, but God. God. This is another one of the great buts. Have you ever seen great buts in the Bible? If you go back a little bit of time ago in, uh, at Into One, we did this series called The Big Butts of the Bible. And some of the Bible buts are just fantastic. And this is one of those great buts. It's important because it, it stands against our traditional way of praying. The regular way that we approach God is to say something like, God, I have done some bad things, but I am going to do better, right? God, I haven't talked to you in a while, but I am going to start praying more. God, I have really messed this up, but I, but I, but I. And the Apostle Paul hears all that. He knows what it's like to live in that world, but he says that's the end. This is a new day. There's a new approach because God has done something new. This Jesus story has made a difference. So when you realize that you've transgressed and when you realize that you're dead in your relationship to God and when you realize that you're far from God, when you realize that you need to start over and and, uh, start over with God, it's no longer but I, it's now a but God. So the way we say it is, God, I know I shouldn't have, but I promise. The Apostle Paul says no longer, right? It's now but God. But God, being rich in mercy. God has so much mercy that he's got extra. For the Apostle Paul to write this, again, it's beautiful and it's huge because he understood the mercy of God in a way that we might not yet be able to grasp. Paul realized that God should have killed him. God could have looked down and seen Paul, seen that all Paul wanted at one section of his life was to try to destroy the church, to try to destroy these children of God, to try and obliterate God's followers. He wanted to try and remove those who were loving and trusting. And and God should have really just looked down and squished the problem named Paul and moved along. 
And God had every reason in the world to squash the Apostle Paul like a bug. But what did God say? Oh, so you're going to try to destroy the church by putting all the Christians in prison. All right, then. I'm just going to show you how rich in mercy I am, which is not the response that comes to our mind at all, right? We look at that moment for a power play where God would assert his dominance by force. That's what we respond to. That's the way we normally think. But that's not the way God moved. He said, let me show you how rich in mercy I am. I'll show the whole world how rich in mercy I am. If I could get everyone's attention, please. Yes, I'm going to choose Paul, the Christian killer, the Christian hunter. I'm going to choose him to plant more churches than anybody else in his generation. It's a lot of mercy. And now we get to a big deal. Again, Think of putting this into this base camp. Put a little star beside this one. This is for those who have never heard, right? This is for those who are, who are coming back after being away. But this might be even more important for those who have been Christians for a long, long time. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, because of his great love with which he loved us. The reason that this is an important statement is because it answers the question, why do you care? Why would you even listen to my prayer? Why would you give me a second chance? God, why do you even pay attention to me? What have I ever done that would justify you paying attention to me? And God says, it has nothing to do with you. Now, this is not one of those things that I, I want to squish into your head, okay? So before you go home and you're alone with just your mind and it sort of fades away, I want you to say it out loud. Why does God respond to you? Because of his great love with which he loved us, all right? Try saying that out loud. Because of his great love with which he loved us. So this is the essence of grace, not by what you've done, but by what he has chosen. So this one is for you. I'm going to change it a little bit and try saying it this way. Because of his great love with which he loved me. All right, say that one. Because of his great love with which he loved me. And Paul is slowly building his case. Why is this so important? This is a major place for us, especially if you are a Christian, because almost everyone seems to have grown up this way. This is a place that we need to renew our minds. We need to release some of the old memories that we have and allow the Holy Spirit to put in a new understanding of this. If you're considering Christianity, or if you're trying to wake your faith back up, this is the key. This is the center. This is the point. This is the nugget. This is the kernel that it all grows from. And if you don't get this, you misunderstand everything after it. It will not work the way that we normally view life. It probably won't work well with the way that you've heard about God in the past. It doesn't mesh with our emotional feelings about God. This is not the way Christianity feels a lot of the time when it's portrayed somewhere else. 
This is not the way that we might feel about God and about how God actually feels about us. And these things are deep inside. These are the things that make you upset in the night when no one's around. These feelings that are left there of what you think God thinks about you. So I want you to hear it again. Because of his great love with which he has loved me. That's why we don't need to negotiate. That's why you don't ever have to bargain with God. He doesn't want something from you. He wants something for you. Let's put this all together, okay? But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. Now, Paul, honestly, your grammar is kind of poor. That's a bit of a run-on sentence. It's complicated. It's confusing when you write. Why do you write like that? Maybe you could just summarize that for us, please. And so he goes on and he says, it is by grace you have been saved. When you were separated from God, when you were dead, but God. God who was rich in mercy, because of this great love with which he loved us, he made us alive. It is by grace that you have been saved. God chose to unseparate you. Because he wanted to. His choice. He wants to do it. He wants to unseparate you. And from that point in the passage, Paul goes on and he changes his focus and he changes his emphasis and he kind of goes on and on. And then he remembers something. And, and maybe a, a lot of Paul's letters were dictated. So, so maybe this is just like sort of stream of consciousness thinking. And so it seems like maybe this is in the middle of a dictation. He thinks to himself... Maybe I went too fast. Maybe I lost them in all my complex, super smart, brainy language. So he swings back around, and in the same chapter, just a couple of verses down in verse 8, he says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. Yeah, I forgot to mention that before. Faith is how the whole thing works. Then we go all the way back to Abraham, okay? And what we discovered back there about faith and trust. And then it goes all the way back to the nation of Israel leaving the nation of Egypt. And the way that you experience this, the way that you step into it, the way that you get harmonized, the way that you hit the proper pitch so that we can sing well together, um, so that the music flows um, with us and through us together, the way that this becomes a reality for you is by a single act of faith. When you acknowledge that God loves you and that Jesus died for your sins on the cross and, and God's expression of love is giving Christ to the world and to you, today, for your sin to make it possible so that you can get synced up, to get you to, to come out of death and move you into life, when you acknowledge that, then all of this grace becomes a reality for you. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And then he says it, this, he goes on, and this is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God. There is no trade, there is no negotiation, there is no bargain. It is not, I will if you will, it is the gift of God. And just in case we don't get that, it's not by works, so that no one can boast. 
There is a grace, this is a, a, a grace gift. And you, you didn't deserve it. Neither did I. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And certainly no one expected it. And all you need to do is ask because God loves you. All right, that's the theology part. Now we've got a little bit of a practical part we have to do with. Because this is a really, really big deal. The problem is that it challenges so deeply what we have heard. And it challenges what we have experienced sometimes. This doesn't fit into the world that we know. We are not familiar. We've heard the words, but to live in that is something entirely different. This is not the way our relationships work. So, what standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? Your behavior or God's grace? Most of us were raised to believe it had something to do with what we did. We were told that what we did impacted where we stood with God. The problem is that in our Canadian culture, we have just about enough Christianization of our thinking, and we have just enough biblicalization of our theology. It's not that we read our Bibles, but, but we, we are well aware of values, and we refer to them, and we say these are from the Bible. We kind of know about, or at least feel like, we are able to speak with a measure of authority. Right? We don't claim to be Bible scholars, but we, we will speak to others about this sort of stuff. And so whether you meant to do it or not, every single one of us here and every single one of us who's listening, wherever you are, you have formulated an idea in your own head of what you believe God will and God won't accept. What might God approve of? What might God not approve of? And most of your worldview, and this is true for most of us, most of our worldviews have been shaped by Bible ideas and Christian ideas, whether you are a Christian or not, and whether you have ever read the Bible or not. It is around us in culture. So if I were to say to you, hey, do you think you can find a good standing with God based on your behavior? Boiling it down, the way that you live would say, yeah, I think that's part of it. So, let me ask you, some of the behaviors, tell me some of the behaviors that you think are acceptable to God. And no doubt you would respond with behaviors that are biblical. And I'd say, where did you get those ideas? And, well, I don't know. And so, the first part is, maybe you just made them up. I mean, we wouldn't actually say that we made them up, but maybe that's the truth. We just made these things up. Or number two, you'd say, well, they're in the Bible. Now, here's, here's the problem, okay? This is going to get a little tense again, and I don't want to push too hard on this, honestly, because I want you to come back next week, <laughs> and, and I want you to come back the week after that, and I kind of want you to see where we're going with this. Don't you ever reach for the Bible to substantiate the fact that you have behaviors that put you in good standing with God because you're in trouble. Most people, the first thing that comes to their mind is they say the Ten Commandments, right? We talked about that. The Ten Commandments were given to a people who were already in good with God. 
They weren't given to help people get in good with God. If you don't remember this, go back and listen to session four, the role of rules. We established that. The Ten Commandments were given to people who were already redeemed, already loved by God. So you can't reach for the Ten Commandments. The next one we go to is, is Jesus' teaching. But honestly, his standards are so high that you will fail every single time. So if you're thinking to yourself, I know what God wants. I read the Sermon on the Mount. Seriously, have you ever read it? Do you know how hard it is to live up to that standard? Jesus intentionally raised the bar so high that everyone gets an F. I know I do. Do you know that you do? That an awful lot of the rest of the New Testament was written by the guy who just finished telling us that it's by grace and not by works. So this whole idea that some of us get that we, can, that we can kind of guess as to what God is looking for. It's a biblically informed moral and value system. But the Bible never teaches that it's by works that we get in good with God. This is an area of deception for us. And it sounds good because rules make us feel secure. Religious rules... <laughs> can make us feel secure. But this is all about grace, about trust and faith. And we don't know how to manage it. There's, there's no standard that we can judge somebody else by in that way, right? We want something that we can say, I'm in or I'm out. But grace, grace is probably the most irreligious idea ever embedded within a religion. The other option is that you just made up a standard. So it's either it was in the Bible or you made it up. And the, a couple of problems with that, the first one is, well, you made it up, right? <laughs> the second one, you're not even consistent with your own list. You give yourself an F from time to time. This is a, an incredibly important component. So that's why we're driving it into this base camp. You need to nail this down and not be loosey-goosey with how you feel about this. There is something there that will impact the way that you are free to live for the rest of your life and the message that you can transfer to somebody else. If you think that you know what it takes to get in good with God based on your behavior, your belief system is biblically informed, but it is not biblically accurate. It's based on the teachings that you might have heard from Jesus but it's not coming out of the ministry of Jesus. You've taken verbs and adjectives and nouns that came from the New Testament, but you've taken them out of context from the flow of the New Testament. Because when you open up the Scriptures and we, we discover there's ain't nobody good enough, ain't nobody even close to good enough, if it's all about your behavior, you're doomed. You're doomed. You're doomed. All right, so back to the question. What standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? Is it your behavior? If you chose this, your system, it will be your system and your standards. The, the other thing to keep in mind, not only did you kind of make this system up, it puts you in line with some of the other major, major religious systems and puts you in line with one of their greatest problems. 
you will never know. You won't even know if you hit the standard. Nowhere on the planet is there a list that says this is what you have to do to know that you have a right standing with God. It just doesn't exist. So if God is good, what kind of God would say, hey, there's a certain lifestyle, and if you embrace it, I'll accept you. But I'm not going to tell you what it is. Good luck. You're left to guess. And as we look at different cultures, we see that there is not common sense that is truly common across cultures across the world. It differs everywhere. And you'll never know. You'll never have peace. The other option is God's grace. Do you know, do you want to know what most of us do when we get that? We say, yeah, I really love God. And so, and so because of what I hear clearly today, I really believe that it's a blend. I think I have to do my part, right? I have to be faithful, should be responsible, pay my taxes, give to the church, recycle in all the right boxes, vote, don't hurt the environment, be kind to people, don't murder anyone. That is great for me. That leaves a couple of gaps. And then that's where God steps in with his grace and fills my gaps. And where did you get that idea? Unfortunately, you got that idea from church. But the guy who wrote half the New Testament said, here's some quick review, okay? It is the gift of God, not by works. What's the G word up there? What is that? What does that say? Now the G word. Gift. That's the one I want, yeah. What is it? What is it? Oh, so you're saying it's the gift of God. But just in case we don't really get what that means, and just because we might not know how a gift actually works, he says not by works. Now that's what the Apostle Paul believed. And that's what he believed Peter, James, and John, who were tight friends with Jesus, also believed. And he believed that that's what Jesus came to demonstrate and to die for. So it's tricky. Are you going to live your life trying to earn a right standing through your behavior that you made up using parts of the Bible, stuff that came from the Bible, but you really can't find that? Or perhaps God's grace is the answer. And here's another way to ask the question we asked before. What standard will you use to determine where you stand with God? What you do for you or what God has done for you? It's an important choice for you to make. So you circle that one. Uh, star it. Write this part down. You need to have an answer that's going to change the way that you live, the way that you think, the way that your mind is being renewed. All religions are about do. The Christian faith is about done. All religion is, God, what can I do so that I can get from you? In the ancient world, regardless of the religion, it was how many animals, sheep, goats, bulls, whatever, how many do I have to sacrifice so that I can win at war? How do I bribe you? How do I get rain on my crops? How do I get healthy children? How do I get a job? How do I find a spouse and get married? God, what do I have to do for you to be interested in me? All of that is the world of religion. And on your 
best day, you still won't know where you stand. The essence of Christianity, what has God done for you? Now, when it comes to how we live, all of the to-dos are a response to what God has to done. Why do Christians forgive? Because we have been forgiven. Why do we give generously? Because God gave generously. Why do we serve? Because we have been served. Why are we kind? Because God has been kind to us. Why do we submit and surrender and put uh, another person before us? Why do we put other people first? Because God on the cross put us first. And I don't know what you've seen or, or what you've heard or what you've been told, but all of the to-dos in the Christian faith are a response to what God has already to done. In the Christian faith, we have been called upon to live a life, not in order to gain God's acceptance, but because we've been given it. If you're trying to get a right standing with God because uh, of what you've done, you're going in the wrong direction because it's already been given it's a gift, and no amount of work matters because it's not a trade. It's a gift. Christianity has never been and never will be about do. It will always be about done and then living in response to what has been done. Because of his great love with which he loved you, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. The whole Old Testament pointed in this direction. Jesus died to make it a reality. And everybody after Jesus looks back and says, um, it is because of Christ's death on the cross that we know God loves us. And anything I do after that is a response and an expression for all he's done for me. In light of that kind of love for me, what else could I do but surrender to my heavenly Father, my Savior, Am I God? So as we go forward, this is another question that you have to answer. You have to decide what you will believe and what you believe will shape what you live. It's critical to building this base camp right now. What will you believe? Does God listen and care about me based on what I have done? Or does God listen and care about me because of what he has done? When you embrace the grace of God, you will find peace. When you find the peace of God, you will no longer wonder. But until you do, there will never be peace. And you will always wonder, where do I stand? The less amazing that you have been, the more amazing God's grace is. The less likely you think it would be that you would ever deserve that kind of grace, the more amazing it becomes for you. So the best option is to accept God's amazing grace. To say, by grace I have been saved. It's a gift from you, God. Thank you for it. I receive what you are offering to me. I take it, I accept it, I cling to it. And I'm so thankful for it. I'll no longer again 
try to work, bargain, or negotiate for it. Thanks for the gift you have given to me. And to help us get that picture, we're going to sing a, a, a well-known song. One of the most famous, and you can probably guess already what it's going to be. And it tells a story. And if you don't know the story of John Newton, the man who wrote this, then you're missing out. A well-known, highly experienced slave trader who had human trafficked for years and years and years. Who knew who he was. How despicable he was as a human being. And in that time, he met Jesus. And he experienced grace. And he tells us how he feels about it. I wanted to bless you as we go today. And to be a little seasonal at the same time. So I wanted to take part of St. Patrick's breastplate and share that with you. St. Patrick's breastplate is a prayer, a long prayer, that St. Patrick um, used to pray regularly to shield himself as he went out to do his work. So he would say, he would pray this, and I'll pray this for you as well. Christ be with me, Christ within me. Christ behind me, Christ before me. Christ beside me, Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ in quiet, Christ in danger. Christ in hearts of all that love me. Christ in the mouth of friend and stranger. Go with Christ and be blessed in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You may be seated. It's better when you're here. It's better when we're together. So thanks for being here. Thanks for being part of this again. Thanks for connecting. Thanks for bringing into one, into reality and into existence. Thanks for bringing faith to life in your life, but in the people who live around you as well.